You know, at 8 o'clock this morning, I was listening to the first reading from Jeremiah, you know, read out 8 o'clock. And I thought after the finish of that lesson, why don't we just all pack up and go home? <laughs> I mean, that's the part of Jeremiah you read and you go, I don't know what to say. So I'm not going to preach on that. It's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting to say that um, the psalm, this, between the, the first and the second reading, Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Uh, St. Anselm wrote a whole essay on this uh, psalm, the fool has said in his heart. And if you look in the prayer book, you'll see that there is a um, introduction to each psalm or a little la Latin line in italics, which tells us what, the, what it was in the Latin Psalter. And so the, the line in this one is Dixit Incipiens. The, the insipid say, there is no God. I always get a kick out of reading that for some reason, or seeing it. What I do want to preach on are, are the re is the reading from 1 Timothy and the reading from uh, Luke's Gospel, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. There are two things that these readings are about, and it, it, it attempts to at least raise the question, what is the church for? What are we supposed to be doing as Christian people coming to church? What's the purpose of, of doing all of this? Is the purpose um, for creating a sort of uh, happy group of people who pat each other into shape? Are we supposed to um, uh, concern ourselves with that as the most important thing? Or in some way are we to be outwardly directed in the course uh, of our Christian faith and life? I don't think it's an either-or thing. I actually think it's both and. But today, we read about uh, something that brings us to um, thinking about uh, Christian charity and the way we understand our vocation, and I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, I tell you, the, the thing I'm going to tell you now, I talk about this all the time, and some of you may say, I don't know why he says all this all the time, and I don't care, or I just, it bothers me, or whatever the case. But I made a pledge to myself when I was in seminary that I was not going to not do this, because it's important uh, to talk to you about um, biblical scholarship. Most New Testament scholars would say today, if they were asked, that Paul did not write First and Second Timothy. And for the purposes of my sermon, I'm going to use the, the name Paul in the course of all this. Uh, most people would say it's, called, it's Deuteropauline. And that's true for some other things. But I'm conservative about most of this. I, I don't think Paul wrote First and Second Timothy, but I do think he wrote Colossians, and I do think he wrote Ephesians. So they can be added to the undoubted letters, as they say. Um, but Paul is speaking about something today which is important. He's recounting in this epistle uh, to uh, Timothy about his conversion and about what he was like before, and what he's like now, and why he believes himself to have been converted, and what his purpose is. So when he speaks about this, he, he is saying uh, something about his past life, about his uh, zealous, zealous persecution of Christians, a person who is violent, 
and um, adamant about these things, and God's grace changed him. And he believes that God's grace changed him because he could now serve as an example to others, to assist others to come to believe. So in the course of this, he believes himself to be an instrument. Paul can sometimes sound maybe a little arrogant, you know, or sound a little bit uh, too positive about things. But one of the things he does is it reminds us of a couple of weeks ago we had some readings about humility. And I mentioned in my sermon that Paul uh, is speaking this way and he actually does have the kind of humility that St. Thomas Aquinas would have described in the 13th century. And that is he knew himself. And here's what he knew. He knew what he knew. And he knew that some of what he knew was more than some other people knew about that, whatever it was. And he also knows that there are other people who know know more about him about something else, about other things. And that's true for all of us. So when we understand humility, it means knowing yourself. It means understanding what it is with confidence that you can say that you know and say it clearly and maybe sometimes emphatically, you know. Sometimes I hear people say things all the time. We hear it in the contentiousness of the, the Internet or on, uh, you know, cable news or something like this. Someone says, da-da. And someone else says, well, that's what you say. Well, sometimes what you say is right. And what it, what it is is what you've learned. You've actually looked it up. When somebody else, if they don't agree with you, they just say, well, that's what you say. Well, I'm saying it because I have a fair amount of uh, knowledge about this particular area, and this is what I'm going to say about it. So Paul does that about his own conversion, that he may may be an instrument of uh, an example to other people. And so for us, as members of the church, that means that we become a transparency of God's grace and love in such, a way, in such a way as to commend our greatest place of safety and assurance in Jesus Christ. Right? So rather than think about Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that may be a useful line for Christian people who understand all of that, but that may not be the best way into this when we speak to other people. We need to be able to uh, commend the faith that is in us uh, by virtue of our example, who we are and what we do. And while we have over nearly 2,000 years often failed miserably at this, we have also been able at our best to do great things and to change things, which is part of what conversion means personally, internally, and corporately. So when we move to the gospel, we have uh, two parables. In Luke's gospel, this chapter, chapter 15, has two parables that we see in other of the synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark. So they're not unique to Luke. But what we didn't read today was the parable of the prodigal son, which we'll read another time, which is unique to Luke. It only appears there 
maybe one of the best parables in the whole of the New Testament. But today he speaks the parable of the lost sheep and he speaks the parable of the lost coin. And here are some things that are underneath this that are very important. The first thing uh, that I've spoken about before many times, Luke is the great apostle to the Gentiles. Luke is a Gentile. Luke is somebody who is, whose message is to a community that is primarily Gentile. Many of them are Gentiles that are attracted to Judaism. But they haven't become Jews. They haven't converted to Judaism. They may be proximate to Jews uh, in towns and cities. But in the main, this is a community of Gentiles. So remember I told you in the Greek text... The word Gentile in Greek is ethne. Ethne. Does it sound familiar? You've heard something like ethne? It means translated those people. So Luke in a Gentile community is around Jews, but he's also speaking a parable where Jesus is around those people. This gospel opens with the Pharisees and the scribes say, this man welcomes and eats with sinners. Those people. So Jesus begins his parable talking about two groups in the ancient Near East that are not highly regarded. One of them is shepherds and the other are women. as exemplars of seeking and saving the lost. The earliest depiction of Jesus in early Christian art is Jesus as the Good Shepherd. If any of you have been to Italy, gone to Ravenna, the San Vitale and uh, the Church of the Mosaics in Ravenna, you've seen a number of mosaics of Jesus with the sheep around his shoulder. Fifth century or, or earlier. Fourth century. The earliest depiction that we know of in Christian art of Jesus on the cross is the late fifth or early sixth century in Rome on a door at Santa Sabina Church, right next door to where Ben-Hur had his big chariot race, the circus, you know? And Santa Sabina dates from the 400s or the early 500s, still there. And it's the church that the Pope goes to on Ash Wednesday to celebrate the liturgy. We used to call them stational churches. That's the one he he goes to if he goes outside uh, St. Peter's Basilica. The purpose of me saying this is the image that was etched in people's mind is a Jesus who's, who moves out to seek and save the lost and bring them back to the community to welcome them to the community and to celebrate with the community about the sheep that was lost And then he makes the remark about there's more rejoicing by the angels of heaven uh, over one person 
who is lost, who is now saved, than 99 righteous persons. You know, I think sometimes for a lot of Christian people, this is a pretty bitter pill. If you believe that you've dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's, why should we be spending so much time with the lost? After all, I've, I've done all I was supposed to do. You know, even Paul said that. Paul said, if I die tomorrow, I go to God blameless. I am absolutely blameless. I have dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. I'm not afraid of what's going to happen to me. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. But a lot of people, you know, get, get worried and nervous and upset because they think their fidelity somehow is being compromised by being generous to someone who perhaps has shown a lack of fidelity in their lives. And instead of rejoicing uh, at other people's fortune and finding finally their one true center. I don't know what it is about human nature that we always sometimes have a tinge of jealousy or regret when we look at somebody else's success in life generally. So this is a parable about not doing that, and it's a parable about understanding the reason why uh, we engage in good works in the world. I have to preach a sermon uh, this afternoon, late this afternoon, on the 30th anniversary of the Santa Maria Urban Ministry. Uh, And one of the things that we've learned over 30 years, I haven't been involved with it for 30 years, I've been involved with it for about 15 Uh, is the beginning of understanding the balance that has to exist between good works, between helping others, and understanding that the way we do that is not balanced. And what I mean by that is often it takes the form of being primarily palliative. Palliative is a fancy word that means the alleviation of pain and discomfort without dealing with the underlying causes. That does not mean that we do not engage in palliative good works and that they are absolutely central. Mother Teresa's work, someone pointed out at at the sermon discussion, was primarily palliative. You know, so she was asked one time, well, if these people are dying from all these mosquito bites, why don't you drain the swamp? That's not my business. My business is, is, is giving care to people who are dying and who are not considered worth anything. So that's what my role is. Well, somebody's going to have to drain the swamp sooner or later. And so what we mean about that is that there needs to be a balance between palliative good works and transformative good works. Transformative means the transformation of character, the ways of being and relating, and the realignment of the structures of society in order that that be so. In other words, a society modeled on the values of the gospel where it is easier for people to be good. So when we think about what Jesus speaks of, the willingness to extend and to bring back can affect change. It affects change in the relational environment in which everybody lives in. 
And so when we do things like that, it affects change in, in the wider society. And I believe that you and I are called to be instruments of that. And Jesus tells us so uh, in today's gospel. So this week, as you think about this, uh, once again, as I always say, uh, give thanks for the fact that God needs you to fulfill his purposes in the cosmos. And give thanks for uh, deepening our common life together, to commending to one another your greatest place of safety and assurance. You know, uh, there's a type of evangelicalism that has become very popular for a century and a half in the United States, or maybe two centuries and that is a type of uh, evangelicalism that focuses on a miserable sinner and you need to accept Jesus because... And you know what? That stuff has created an environment where some of the people, uh, some people have been lost to the church forever. They've been lost to the church forever because of that kind of preaching and teaching. You get saved and then... You have to spend the rest of your life walking on eggs so you make no missteps to get to where it is you want to go or are supposed to go, right? Rather than cooperating with God in the purposes of God or as one Anglican divine said in the 18th century, the processes of God. So give thanks for being part of the processes of God and uh, finding the ways and the means to commend your greatest place of safety and assurance to others. Amen.